We're continuing our series tonight as uh, we have this fall through the book of Genesis, specifically the story of Isaac and his son Jacob. And tonight we'll be in Genesis chapter 32, uh, looking at the first 20 or so verses. If you have your Bibles, I would encourage you to open them. Uh, The whole text for tonight is also found in the insert, uh, which you received when when you arrived here tonight. Well, about two years ago, uh, my wife and I had the blessing of, uh, we had a sabbatical here from church and we were able to travel and we spent a few weeks down in New Zealand, um, which was was an amazing thing. One of the most amazing things is it was February here, which means it was summer there, right? So I was like, if this can be a permanent gig every February to go to the summer again, I wouldn't mind that. Um, but one of the really cool things that, that we discovered as we were heading, heading down there is the, the original bungee jumping location is in New Zealand. The original bungee jumping location is in New Zealand. And my wife, Kristen, was like, we got to do it. And I'm like, we have to do it or you have to do it? She goes, I have to do it. I go, that's the right answer, right? And so, so we, were, uh, we were there. It was in Queenstown is the name of this place. They call themselves the Adventurous Capital of the World. And my wife signed up, and we took her um, to this place, this bridge, which was the first bungee jumping location in the world. And that is a picture of my wife. Um, and so, so you get kind of strapped in. You go through. They have all the, uh, all the gear together. They strap it on the harness, on the legs. And then I, I have video of this, which we're not going to show tonight. I'm somewhere standing off to the side videoing it, but they kind of get my wife all locked in. She kind of, you can't really walk because you can see there's a brace around your ankles and legs. She kind of hobbles right to the edge and she just doesn't stop and she just goes. She just jumps. Someone asked me when we got back and I told them about this, like, well, did you jump? And I said, well, my philosophy on bridges is the same as it is on airplanes. If it's not burning, I'm not jumping. Right, like I'm, I'm staying put. I'm staying in. My wife's also gone skydiving as well. But, but she just jumped up and went right out. And after, after she had come up, you go inside and there's kind of this really, uh, there's this really big room um, and it's total like adventure sports type stuff. So, so you're in this huge gathering place and all over on the bridge underneath there's cameras, both documenting it for the people jumping, but they have live stream in on this giant TV inside. And so there's dozens of people in the venue watching live all the people right outside the building who are about to jump off this bridge. After my wife did it, another, uh, another lady went up, probably mid-20s, you know, a little post-college age, somewhere around there, went up. And they, they strapped her in. They got her all set to go. And meanwhile, she has a bunch of, I'm guessing, family, looked like family outside watching her. Dozens of people inside watching her on the TV. She scoots up to the edge. She bends her legs to go. And she stops. And she backs off. <laughs> And you can hear the audio, and she scoots back up, and they go, one, two, three, and she goes, and backs up again, right? She did this, pro- I don't know how many times. It was multiple times. She was up there for minutes, standing right at the edge, looking down. I didn't look up how far it is. It's at least probably 150, 200 feet down to the ship, right? So it's an extreme distance. And she stood there, and, and she was paralyzed by fear, Right? It seemed like a good idea until you get to the edge, and then suddenly she's like, all right, this isn't a great idea. What am, what am I doing? And fear kind of took over till, till finally, 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 they were able to get her going. Of course, everyone, she gets the loudest cheer, right, because she was able to, to overcome that, and she finally went. But her reaction as she stood at the end of that bridge is often our same reaction when we experience fear in our lives. Fear can be paralyzing, can't it? We can reach things where we stop and we, it just hits us dead in our tracks. 
and we're not sure what to do. We're not sure where to go. Life is full of things that inflict fear into our lives, isn't it? We have fears about our health or our friends, or our relatives' health. We have fears in relationships, or with our spouse, or with our kids, or with our parents. There's uncertainty about our future, whether that be our country, our career, all sorts of things. There are so many things that come up in each of our lives that could inflict fear on us, that if we don't know how to handle it, if we don't know how to approach it biblically, it could paralyze us and stop us in our tracks. So how should we respond to fear? Tonight, in Genesis chapter 32, we're going to see how Jacob responds to fear. Genesis 32 is kind of the turning point moment in the life of Jacob. We're going to look at the first 20 verses tonight and the concluding 10 verses next week. Genesis 32 is kind of the moment in Jacob's life where everything shifts. Now, after Genesis 32, it's not like he's this perfect person who commits no wrong or no sin, but he's different. His life has been changed by what happens in chapter 32. 32. Well, to set up the story of Jacob, if you haven't been with us, if you have been, enjoy the 30-second recap, you'll appreciate it. Jacob has grown up. He was twin brother. He stole his both the blessing as well as the birthright from his twin but slightly older brother Esau. He ran away from home after stealing the birthright to murderous threats from his brother Esau saying, I'm going to kill this guy. I'm going to kill him. He runs away to his family's home, extended family, long way, hundreds of miles away, where he marries Leah and Rachel. After 20 years, he leaves Laban. And last week, we looked at where he escapes from Laban. There's all sorts of conflict going back and forth against each other um, as, as they finally leave. And then in chapter 32, verse 1, we, hear, we see this Jacob talking about his departure from Laban. Jacob went on his way. It says this, And the angels of God met him. And when Jacob saw them, he said, this is God's camp. So he called the name of that place Mahanaim. So, so we see here he encounters, now he encounters God. In chapter 32, his book ended by encounters with God. We see a brief encounter here. We don't know much about it, but we see a more extended encounter at the end. But it reminds us as Jacob left the land that God had promised to him and his ancestors in chapter 28, God appeared to him and God promised that he would sustain Jacob till he's brought back. Now Jacob's leaving Laban and headed back towards the land and he is promised again by God. He sees God's presence. We don't get a lot more details than that. He calls the name of that place Mahanaim, which means literally, if you look down at the bottom of your Bibles, next to the number, it says two camps. This has puzzled scholars forever. This is one of these things that scholars will always debate. What two camps is Jacob naming this place for? Is it his camp and God's camp? Is it Jacob's camp and Laban's camp? Is it Jacob's camp? And as we're going to find out soon who's next to him as well, is it Esau's camp? Is it Jacob's two camps when he divides his camps, which we're going to see him do later in the chapter? The answer, we don't know. We don't know why Jacob called it two camps. But what we do know is that God was there. And God showed up. His angels, again, the other time that appears in the book of Genesis is in chapter 28, where the angels of God descended up and down the staircase as, the, as God appeared to Jacob as he was leaving the land. Jacob, verse 3, says this, Jacob sent messengers before him to Esau, his brother, in the land of Seir, the country of Edom. Jacob is going back home. 20 years have Past. We find out earlier that, that, we're, that we're told that his mom is now dead. 
She's not there to keep the peace, to look out for him. He was mom's favorite. It's just Esau now. And after 20 years, he's going home and he has no idea what his reception will be. And so he sends messengers ahead. And there's so many plays on words that, aren't, that we don't see in the English Bible. In the land of Seir, or Seir, the, Seir it's, this, it's a, a play on words that looks just like the word hairy. Esau was born and his name was that partly because he was hairy. And he's going to the land of Harry, also to the country of Edom. Edom is, sounds exactly the same in Hebrew as the word red. Esau was a hairy redhead, right? And so the plan words here is they're going to the hairy red land to see the hairy redheaded brother, right? That's kind of the play on words in the Hebrew language. And so he's headed to Esau's home. And he gives them these instructions to the messengers that he sends ahead. Verse 4, thus you shall say to my lord Esau, Thus says your servant Jacob. Let's stop there. Did Esau rule over Jacob? No. Was Jacob his servant as if he owed Esau something? No. Something is different here is happening as Jacob's heart is starting to be changed. He calls Esau and tells them to reference him as his Lord and to refer to Jacob as his servant. This is suddenly language of deference, of peacekeeping, of humility out of Jacob's mouth. He says this, say, thus says your servant Jacob, I have sojourned with Laban and stayed until now. I have oxen and donkeys, flocks, male servants and female servants. I have sent to tell my Lord in order that I might find favor in your sight. So he he explains a little bit that he left, but he's just been sojourning. It was never home. And now he's coming back home. And he requests to find favor in his sight. This is a request that a subordinate would ask their boss. A subordinate would ask a king, can I find favor in your sight? This is Jacob taking the posture of humility to his brother Esau, that he would so find favor in the sight of Esau. So the messengers are sent to Esau. We have no Recollection. We have no recording of what happens as the messengers meet Esau. The messengers come back to Jacob with this. Verse 6. And the messengers returned to Jacob saying, We came to your brother Esau, and he is coming to meet you, and there are 400 men with him. Then Jacob was greatly afraid and distressed. He's like, hey, it's great. Esau's coming. Oh, by the way. 400 guys are coming with them as well. Remember, Esau, as we know from chapter, earlier in the book, in chapters 26 and 27, Esau has grown up to be what? He's a hunter. He's an outdoorsman. He is a man with a bow. He's an outdoors hunter kind of guy. Jacob is a simple man, a businessman. He, he works with the herds. And he hears Esau's coming with 400 men. This is the largest recorded army in the Bible up to this time. When Abraham went out to to defeat in Genesis chapter 14, he took 318 men with him. This is now 400 men. If you remember later in the Bible, when David would often go out and fight, he had either armies of four or 600 men that would often kind of his core army with him. This is a sizable group, such so that it's overwhelming to Jacob because Jacob's group primarily consists of what? Animals and women and children. And here come 400 men his way. There's this double, double description. He wasn't just afraid, but he was greatly afraid. He wasn't just greatly afraid. He was also distressed. He has shaking, literally, he's shaking in his sandals. He didn't have boots, right? He's shaking in his sandals. 
So he divided the people who were with him and the flocks and the herds and the camels into two camps, thinking, well, if Esau comes to the one camp and attacks it, then the camp that is left will escape. You know a man's scared when he divides his kids in half and is like, well, at least if half of them are slaughtered, the other half survive. That's his level of fear is that he thinks my kids or my family is going to be utterly destroyed. So maybe if I hide half of them, they will escape after Esau comes and wipes us to the ground. He is terrified. Verse nine. And Jacob said, O God of my father Abraham and God of my father Isaac, O Lord, who said to me, and he's recalling God's promise to him in chapter 28, return to your country and to your kindred that I may do you good. I am not worthy of the least of all the deeds of steadfast love and all the faithfulness that you have shown to your servant. For with only my staff, I crossed this Jordan and now I have become two camps. He cries out, I am not worthy. Literally, I am too small. God, I'm too insignificant that you would have thought of me and made this to happen. We're looking tonight at this passage, and as we look at it, we're going to discover three proper responses to fear in our lives. Three proper responses that Jacob shows us to fear in our lives. And the first is this. The first proper response is humility. The first proper response is humility. First, Jacob has humbled himself before Esau. Right? He's, taken a, he's taken a posture of humility. He said, you are my Lord, I am the servant. If you would find favor in my sight, even though I'm the one who God has been richly blessed and grown in all of this wealth. Not only does he humble himself before his brother, he humbles himself before God. and says, God, all that you've done for me, I'm not worthy of that. I'm not worthy of all that you have done for me. Humility is so important for the followers of God to have characterized in our life. I remember one of the books that I read years ago when I was in college by a Puritan pastor. He writes that he says, it's a contradiction in terms to claim to be a Christian and not to be humble. It's a contradiction in terms to be claimed to be a Christian and not to be humble. So why is humility so important for us? Why is humility so important for us as followers of God? First, because it's necessary for salvation. To be saved, necessary for salvation, to be saved as the Bible teaches us that we need to be saved is an act of humility for each and every one of us. There's so many passages that we could look at for this. We'll just look briefly at Titus chapter 3. It says this, But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, get this, not because of works, done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit. It's necessary for us to be saved. Humility is because in humility, we cry out to God and say, I'm not good enough. It's not my own works. I'm not good enough. And humility is necessary for us to have salvation before God because until we're humbled by our sin and can admit that we're not good enough and we need his help, we need his love, we need his mercy, we will never have salvation. Not only is uh, humility necessary for salvation, it's necessary for our own spiritual growth. Humility is necessary for our own spiritual growth and walk with God. So often throughout the New Testament, there's warnings given to believers about the dangers of pride, but the value of seeking humility in our lives. 
James chapter 4 contains a few of those warnings. He says this, speaking of God, but God gives more grace. Therefore, it says, in quoting from the book of Proverbs, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. A few verses later, it says, humble yourselves, therefore, before the Lord, and he will exalt you. Humility in our lives, ongoing humility, not just a one-time humility and asking for forgiveness of sins, but ongoing humility is essential for God to work out in our lives the growth that he wants. When we are filled with pride, we are actually, God is opposed to us. So for us to grow in our relationship with God, for us to become more like Christ, it necessarily requires us for us to be humble. Not only that, but humility is necessary for unity in the church. Humility is necessary for unity in the church. If God's people are filled with pride, then unity as God would have for this, his body to be described is impossible to have. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10, Paul appeals to the Corinthian church. He says this, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and in the same judgment. And twice in the book of Corinthians, after he appeals for unity, he says this, stop boasting about yourselves and start boasting about Jesus. Stop taking pride in yourselves and what you've done, but start taking pride in who God is and what he's called you to. See, often in the midst of fear, it's easy for us to forget who we are in God. When we experience fearful circumstances in our lives, one of the most important things for us to do, as it was for Jacob to do, was to go back and to realize who we are. Friends, if you are facing a fearful circumstance, look back and remind that everything you have in your life, like Jacob, you're not worthy of. We're not worthy of God's love. He didn't look down on us and say, wow, look at that person. I need them. I gotta have them. Let me do something. No. We're not worthy of that. Everything that we have in our lives is undeserved mercy and grace from God. And that changes our perspective when we face fearful circumstances to remind ourselves of who we are and whose we are before God, that we belong to him, that everything we have from him already in life is undeserved, that we remain humble before him. Jacob Praise this prayer. He starts by remembering this command that God gave him to return. By humbling himself, saying he's not worthy of any of what God has done for him. And then he turns to his request in verse 11. His request, which is this. Please deliver me from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau, for I fear him. That he may come and attack me, the mothers with the children. But you said... This is looking back to chapter 28. I will surely do you good and make your offspring as the sand of the sea, which cannot be outnumbered for multitude. See, Jacob, when he left the land of Israel and went out towards Laban, he was hoping just to survive. If you remember that the vow that he made to God in Genesis 28 verses 20 and 21 was basically like, well, if you keep me alive, I'll worship you. God's like, keep you alive man, you're going to be excited when you come back here in 20 years. Like you're going to have a lot more than just your life. You're going to have more kids than you ever dreamed of, more land, more, all these things. Your wealth, your blessing will all be overflowing from you. God had greater plans for Jacob. 
Yet what we see here in these first three words of chapter, of chapter 32, verse 11, maybe three of the most shocking words that we see in all the story of Jacob, where Jacob cries out to God, God, please deliver me. God, please help me. Because if you've been journeying with us in the life of Jacob, you see how shocking this is because in every situation that Jacob has ever experienced in his life that we have recorded up to this point, when he gets in a hard situation, he goes, oh, I know how to trick my way out of this. Right? I know how to deceive my way out of this. And so thus when he was younger, He's like, oh, Esau, you're hungry? Oh, I know how to make this work for me. I'm going to get a birthright right here. Hey, check this out. Well, I'll scoop this around. Birthright, mine, right? Mom overhears dad wanting to bless Esau. Jacob's like, oh, I want the blessing. This is, I want the blessing. I don't want Esau to have it. What am I going to do? We're going to come up with a little plan along with mom. We're going to go along and make the plan perfect. Boom, plan done. I got it. I figured it out. When he wanted last week to leave from Laban, did he pray and cry out to God for God's wisdom and guidance? What did he do? He's like, no, I got this. I'll trick it. I'll do it when they're off doing, taking care of the sheep. I'll leave. We'll run away in the dark. And then even how they come to peace is Jacob negotiating it. Being like, I'll, I'll negotiate my way out of this conflict with Naban. For the first time in his life, Jacob saying, I don't have this under control anymore. I don't have this anymore, God. God, I need you. God, I need you. He shows us the second proper response to fear, which is trust. The second proper response to fear, which is trust. Jacob saying, I've walked with you for decades, God. I tried to follow you for a long time. But all he's left with now is saying, all I know is this. God, I'm scared. What I see in my life frightens me. I don't even know if I will survive or my family will survive. But all I know is this, verse 12, but you said, I will surely do you good and make your offspring as the sand of the sea, which cannot be outnumbered for multitude. Jacob finds himself in chapter 32, thrown fully on one thing alone. And that's the promises of God in his life. He's given up on everything in his life except for what God has promised him. God, all I got is you said this. So God, I need you to come through. God, I, I'm done with my answers. I have nothing left to try. God, if you don't help me, I can't make it. Friends, when God takes us to that point, that's good for us. When God takes us to that point, and here's the thing, in our lives, he often will, because until he takes us to that point, like Jacob, we're like, oh, I can figure this out on my own. I don't need God's help. I can figure out how to manage this situation at work. I can figure out my future. I can solve this problem with my family on my own. Until finally he takes us to the very end where he wants us to be at a point to say, all right, God, I got nothing except for your promises to me. In our world, though, we so often... Day by day as we live, we forget the promises of God in our lives. We forget the promises of God. When writing um, one, one scholar, I think it was from Harvard, talking about American culture in our world, he says that we live in a what-have-you-done-for-me-lately society. He says, our world struggles with what-have-you-done-for-me-lately syndrome. And he says, you see this across all sorts of our world. If you're, uh, for instance, if you're a Chicago Blackhawks fan, Right? Your coach, the Chicago Blackhawks, was 
three Stanley Cups in 10 years, has won the second most games in the history of hockey. And because his team got off to a slow start this year, he got fired this week. Why? Because he's the most successful coach in the history of the franchise, but he's had a bad couple weeks. Whoop, he's gone. Right? What, what have you done for me lately? What have you done for me lately? We sometimes think, and this guy was writing, that America is a very forgiving nation. Oh, we forgive people. It's like, no, we don't forgive. We just forget what they've done. Right? Like, oh, you might have done some bad stuff, but have you done some good stuff lately? All right, let's just focus on that. And so often we get so distracted by the present that we forget the past. And this is true in our walk with God as well. And when we start to ask God this question, God, what have you done for me lately? God's sitting upstairs and he's like, are you kidding me? Are you, you want it like the last week, really? That, because I haven't showed you up in your last life and blessed you last week, you think you're in some situation to talk back to God. And be like, God, why? What have you done for me ever? What have you done? Because we live in a world where if God hasn't done something for us in the last 24 hours, each of us are prone to be like, forget about God. What has he ever done for me? But God's up in heaven like, listen, I have made promises to my people that, that we lose so often in, in a society like this, we lose the big picture of who God is. We tend to just look for God's work in our life and we forget the character of God in our lives. So when we face fearful circumstances in our lives, one of the best things that we can do is remind ourselves of the promises of God. Remind ourselves of if you're a child of God, what has God promised you? Romans 1, God promised you salvation to anyone who believes in Jesus Christ. Romans chapter 8, God promised that all things would work out for the good of those who follow after him and are called according to his purpose. 2 Corinthians 1, if you're a child of God, he promises that he will comfort you in all your trials. Not stop the trials from happening, but in the midst of them, he would comfort you and be with you. 2 Corinthians 5, he promises that there is new life in Jesus for all who would follow after him. Ephesians chapter 1 promises God's followers that every spiritual blessing in Jesus Christ is ours through Jesus. In Philippians chapter 1, God promised that the good work that he started in you, he would be faithful to complete it. Philippians chapter 4, he promises that he would give us peace that will guard our hearts and minds in Christ Jesus when we call out to him in prayer. But we so often forget that. Whatever fear we may face, this passage is a reminder that we never face it alone. Friends, whatever fear you may face in your life, you don't face it alone if you are a child of God. And when you have nothing to hold on to in your life but the promises of God, you still have a lot to hold on to. That he has promised you so, so much. So Jacob, in his desperation, calls out and he cries out for deliverance from Jesus, from God. Verse 13 says this. So Jacob stayed there that night. And from what he had with him, he took a present for his brother Esau. See, we've talked about this throughout as we look at throughout all the Old Testament, but especially in the book of Genesis. Trust in God doesn't mean like a Christian passivity. Like, oh, I trust in God, so I'm not going to do anything anymore. Right? No, trust in God often is our greatest motivation to action and to, mo and to do something. So verse 14 says this, Jacob has this idea, hey, I'm going to bless Esau with gifts. 
So verse 14, these are the gifts. 200 female goats and 20 male goats. 200 ewes and 20 rams. 30 milking camels and their calves. 40 cows and 10 bulls. 20 female donkeys and 10 male donkeys. If that feels like a lot of gifts, it is. All right, that's a lot of gifts. That's extreme generosity. It's not like, hey, here's a chicken, Esau. I have some barbecue before I show up, right? This is extreme generosity on his behalf. He's micromanaging all the details because he's scared. He's scared of what's going to happen to himself and to his family. Verse 16 says, these, these gifts he handed over to his servants. Every drove by itself and said to his servants, pass on ahead of me and put a space between the drove and the next drove. He instructed the first one, when Esau, my brother, meets you and asks you, to whom do you belong? Where are you going? And who are these ahead of you? Then you shall say, they belong to, again, your servant. Notice the humility, your servant, Jacob. They are a present sent to my Lord, Esau. And moreover, he, being Jacob, is behind us. He likewise instructed the second and the third and all who followed the droves. You shall say the same thing to Esau when you find him. And you shall say, moreover, your servant, Jacob, is behind us. And now we get the rationale, for he thought, I may appease, also often the same word as atone or reconcile with him, with the present that goes ahead of me. And afterward, I shall see his face. Perhaps he will accept me. So the present passed on ahead of him, and he himself stayed that night in the camp behind. So get the picture. Esau is there. He's charging with 400 men. They're on their way to meet Jacob. We have no idea what Esau is thinking right? When suddenly Esau and his band of rebels are walking down the road, when suddenly here come a couple hundred goats charging towards him full speed. They're not scared, right? It's just goats, right? And here come hundreds of goats. And Esau, finally the guy comes by. Esau's like, what is this? What's going on? He's like, this is for you. This is a present from your servant, Jacob. Jacob's coming as well. Esau's like, oh, all right. Nice guy. Rounds the corner. A couple hundred sheep, coming his way. Esau's like, what is this? And they're like, well, this is a present from your servant, Jacob, and he's coming soon behind us. And after Esau walks around and sees all the sheep, then he keeps going. Suddenly, not just little animals now, but camels around the corner. Over 30 camels come around. And Esau's like, what the world is going on? Where did he get camels from? Camels? Camels are for rich people. How does he have dozens of them? How does he have dozens of these? And he walks up and says, Esau, these are a gift from your servant, Jacob. And he is coming behind us as well. Then he runs the corner. They got cows. We got steak. We got milk. This is good. <laughs> Esau's a hunter. He's like, oh, yes, I love steak. Right? Cows come around the corner. And Esau's like, what is going on? And like, these are a gift from your servants, Jacob. And Jacob is soon to come. Finally, after this, come a couple dozen donkeys. He's like, donkeys? And they're like, yes, these are a gift from your servant, Jacob, and Jacob is soon to come. Five, over 550 animals in all. And not little chickens either, right? Like big animals, camels, and sheep, and cows, and donkeys, and goats. Each one, each time it reinforces the humility that Jacob was wanting to show and the reassurance that Jacob would come to him, hoping to appease that, that it would restore the relationship between him and Esau. The third proper response in the face of fear that Jacob shows us is generosity. 
The third proper response in the face of fear that Jacob shows us is generosity. See, oftentimes when we face fear in our lives, our natural reaction is to go into self-preservation mode, right? To go into self-preservation mode. Oftentimes when you can find a scared person, you know what we wish we could do? We wish we were like turtles, or anytime they felt any danger at all, you know what they did? They just go whoop right into their shell, and they're like, no, you can touch me, ha, 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 ha. Right? Don't you wish sometimes that's how we tend to react. If we get scared, we're like, we're going to suck in. Ain't nobody hurting me. I'm not, no one's getting anything from me. I am on full-on self-preservation mode. But what Jacob does is he flips the script, and he tries to kill Esau with kindness. Right? He kills him with kindness and generosity, over-the-top, flowing, way extravagant, extremely over-the-top. And Esau's like, what in the world are hundreds of animals doing? And he's like, these are all yours, from your servant, Jacob, to you. See, in times of fear, oftentimes what God wants for us is actually to kill the people in our lives with kindness around us. Sometimes that can be so hard and so difficult to do, but it often is what God has helped us to do and what solves so many of the conflicts in our lives. I remember one time back when I was in college and I was in a work situation where I was actually working alongside someone that I had a bad conflict with and had a rough past with. And I remember I was talking to my dad about it. I'm like, man, it's, it's just so hard. It's so awkward. I don't want to. And I'm like, and he goes, remember, don't treat them like how you should treat everyone else. And I'm like, all right, yes, I get to be mean to them. Thanks, dad, you're awesome. And he said, treat them better than you would treat anyone else. I'm like, oh, that's not what I was looking for, dad. Treat them better. I often joke with people that I think sometimes one of the prerequisites for working in ministry, which I got to do, should be working either a retail or food industry job, right? You know how to kill people with kindness when it's your job just to serve them food or to sell them something all day long. Because oftentimes you really can see the ugly side of people when it comes to servers and busboys and people who are working in retail, as you see so often just the, but not around Christmas, right? We're all loving and charming around Christmas to people. Oh yeah, even then. Right? But what is the response is you could, if for people who are experienced, can tell you, you just got to keep killing people with kindness. So often, rather than being generous people in our lives, both with what God has given us as well with our love towards others, in fearful circumstances, we go into self-preservation mode. Can I just encourage you, if you're facing fear in your life, now's not the time to clam up to make life all about you. Now's the time to be generous as well to continue to be generous with your love, with your time towards other people. It's often in our generosity that God meets us and uses us and overcomes our fears. Jacob's life is changed in chapter 32 because he starts to discover that whatever fear he faces, he doesn't face it alone. What fear are you facing tonight? If we were sitting down and going to grab dinner tonight after this and we just started to talk, what thing is in your life that's causing you, when you wake up at two in the morning, that your mind goes to this, that you're unsure of, that you don't know how God will work this out, that you're frankly maybe like Jacob, you are greatly afraid and distressed about. Maybe it's your future. Maybe it's a family gathering next Thursday called Thanksgiving. Maybe it's things at work. Maybe it's a relationship. Whatever fear you have to face in your life, 
I hope you can remind yourself that you don't face it alone. God goes with us. And in the midst of our fears, oftentimes all we have is to rest on the promises of God. But when we are followers of God, that's plenty to rest on, even in times that are afraid and fearful. God, we thank you that you meet us in our fears. God, that you are a God who walks with us, who comforts us through all the trials and the difficulties of life. God, in the stillness right now, whatever fear may be on our hearts, would we find it in ourselves to trust you? Would your spirit give us the, the power to trust you with the difficulty, the fear, the distress that we have in our hearts? God, there is so much in this world that could inflict fear. We are so thankful that even in the midst of fear, we never have to face it alone. We thank you that you are always with us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.